Hello and welcome to the One Stop English podcast for August 2017. Each month we bring together teachers, editors and experts to discuss what's going on in the world of ELT. I'm your host, Sam Wadsworth, former teacher and current editor here at Macmillan. Joining me this month are Patrick Curry, Delta qualified teacher and editor and One Stop English. Hi, Sam. Beth Williams, former teacher and editor of numerous general English and secondary titles. Hello. And Claire Venables, freelance teacher and teacher trainer in Espirito Santo in Brazil and founding member of the Voices Special Interest Group. Hi there. This month we'll be discussing the threat of translation technology, how to teach false friends, and prosody. We also have an interview with Lindsay Clanfield, author of Global and Straightforward, regular contributor to One Stop English, co-founder of The Round, and co-host of the TEFL Commute podcast. Right, Claire, so um, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay, well, I've been teaching in Brazil since 2011. Before that, I was based in Spain. But for the last seven years, I've gotten really into teacher training, particularly with young learners. That's my passion area. I love teaching the kids. And I have a young learner teacher development course, uh, presential and online. Right, and so what kind of age ranges do you usually teach in Brazil? Well, believe it or not, I actually have a group of zero to three-year-olds. Wow. That's a bit of a pioneer course that I'm doing here in Vitoria, in Espiritu Santo. But it's with the mothers as well. So the objective of this course is to get the families involved in the language learning process. So we meet once a week to play with the babies and learn songs and games. But other than that, I also do preschool, so the very young learners, three to five, and primary school. That's really interesting. And so your work with the um, the really young children and their parents, do their parents have to be of a pretty reasonable level of English or do you, does it work with anyone? Not at all. Not at all. These, these are kinds of these activities that we're doing together uh, to teach the parents the songs and, and games that your parents probably used with you too when you were growing up uh, that they can do at home. It's just an initial start into, into the world of the English language for these babies and parents were really committed to raising children who are bilingual so it's a lot of fun we speak in portuguese as well amongst ourselves and then we learn the songs and games in english wow that sounds really interesting yeah different isn't it yeah all right let's get started patrick i understand that translation technology might just put us all out of a job um well hopefully not but uh that's what our first story is this month um it's about translation technology And I thought it'd be interesting to take a look at some of the newest technologies available, um, just to have a chat about them and see how they might impact the ELT classroom. So before we start and look at the new technology out there, I wanted to talk to the three of you, Claire especially, about, uh, well, translation. If you speak the language uh, of your students, Claire, I understand you speak Portuguese. Uh, Mm. Do you ever translate in class? And if so, why do you do it or or, or why not? Mm. Listen, you know what? I don't use translation in my class with young learners. But I do recognize that L1 has its place, definitely, particularly when it comes to classroom management. I think it's really important that if uh, you have to um, talk to a child about their behavior or misbehavior, that that's done in their mother tongue. So that will happen in Portuguese. I'll take the child aside, I'll get down to the child's level, and I'll talk to them about what happened and, and what needs to happen in the future, because I think it's actually cruel to be doing that in a language that they don't understand. Okay, I mean, Sam, Beth, when you were teaching prior to working here, did you ever use translation? I did a little bit. The school I worked for was quite against using any translation Mm. whatsoever. But um, I felt, you know, obviously, especially with elementary or beginner learners, it just saves so much time if you're going to have to explain. If you don't have a pencil and you want to 
you know, get across the, the word pencil, it's so much quicker just to say the word in that language rather than explain that it's something you used to write with. It's not a, pe you know, so yes, I did. Okay, well, what if you had something, some kind of technology that could tell you the word for pencil? Mm, so I want to have a look segue. at some of these, these new technologies. <laughs> um, so I'll start off with the first one I saw was the uh, Panasonic Megaphone. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's been developed in preparation for the 2020 Olympics in, uh, in Japan. And essentially, it translates Japanese into three languages, so English, Chinese, and Korean. And it was used, it was trialed at uh, Narita Airport. And so they would bark an order into it, something about where your gate number was, and it would be automatically translated into English, Korean, and Chinese. Mm. Like set phrases, presumably. Yeah, you could use it at, your, at the start of your class just to bark an order and it translated to your <laughs> class. <laughs> um, but unfortunately, it's only got about 350 preloaded set phrases at the moment. Mm. Right. So I wonder why though. Why does it actually translate it? Why isn't it just a button for each to play a recording of each you know instruction that you need? Good question. Strange. Good question. Yeah. But I wonder if it's going to be kind of trialed at, at different kind of uh, venues, not just airports, but maybe stadiums for different kind of events. Um, I don't know how it would work in the classroom. Um, but anyway, that's uh, that's for the twenty twenty Olympics. So. Right. Yeah. Actually, Patrick, I've got a student who is working on that project, not the translation project, but he's working on a project for the 2020 Olympic Games. And he was mentioning this in a class the other day. And he said one of the reasons that they did it was because of the Japanese culture and them being so focused on uh, being corrected and, and sort of saving face and not making mistakes. And I wonder how much... Um, I wonder how... I wonder how that would work in the classroom as well if for that exact type of cultural situation when you have students who... who uh, uh, fear making mistakes. I don't know. Hmm. It was interesting talking to him about about that technology. I think I certainly think that technology can help us overcome a lot of difficulties in situations with big events like this, where you have to get a lot of people communicating in a very short amount of time. And we know that learning a language takes time, and perhaps this would be one solution. Definitely a time saver. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Um, the second thing I looked at was uh, was actually called is Google Translate. Yeah but a, an updated version of it. I think we've all used Google Translate, just uh, putting in set phrases and, yeah. and sentences. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Have, have either yeah. of you looked Mixed, at this? Definitely. Have any of you looked at this this new app, though, that they have that, that you can get on your, your phone? I've heard about it. it Hold sounds... on, I, I, I've got to show you. Listeners, you'll enjoy this too. I've got to show Beth this, this technology <laughs> if I can find it, because... Basically, what it does now, gonna awesome. you're going to have live reactions to it because it is, I, I, to be fair, I was just really impressed with it when I used it. Basically, you hover your camera phone over um, a, set, a piece of text um, and choose the language that you want it to be translated to. And it translates everything that you see into that language. But it also uses the same font size and things, which is really, it's just, it's disturbing almost. Um, let, let me show you. Okay. Here we go. I've got French set up. Apologies, Claire, that you can't see this, but it's just to, to blow to blow Beth's mind. Can you see that? Wow. Wow. Beth, do you speak French? Can you check to see if that's an accurate translation? <laughs> that, I, that I can't. I did check it with someone and they said it was okay. It, it definitely is. I can confirm it is French. <laughs> see, that's, that, that, I'm not sure. That's one of the issues here, though, is, is, is accuracy or lack thereof. Right. Um, so I was, I was looking into the kind of pros and cons. I mean, obviously... As benefits is the speed, um, but yeah. it, it negates any kind of real learning. Um, and I think if you use it too much, yeah. you foster kind of reliance on it. So. It's that like sat nav effect, isn't it? Since sat navs come in, like it's very difficult for us. To, well, for me anyway, if I'm, I don't know roots anymore because I just rely on my sat nav, and it's kind of that reliance on technology. Right. Although, surely it'd be so useful if you went to if you were going to a country um, and it was somewhere that you were never intending to learn that language yeah. um, and 
rather than getting out your kind of lonely planet and looking at the stock phrases or trying to understand what signs meant, if you could just hover that over a sign or something and it would translate that, that would surely make your life much easier. Yeah, it would, absolutely. But I found something quite amusing about lack of accuracy. It wasn't actually Google Translate, but there's another app that I was looking at with a colleague of mine and it was uh, object recognition. So it wasn't writing, but you'd point it at an object and it would tell you the word for that object in the language. Wow. Except, well, we pointed it at my male boss's shoe and it came up with a stiletto. <laughs> and to clarify, was he wearing a stiletto? Or? He was wearing a brogue, actually. A brogue, okay. Yeah. So uh, slightly a, in, a inaccurate. Brogue? No. It wasn't even a heel brogue, just a standard suede brogue. Um, anyway, the last thing I looked at was actually Skype Translator, which is an interesting one. I think everyone's used Skype, um, everyone listening, hopefully. And you can have a conversation where basically I would speak to someone in China and then Skype would translate everything I said into a text on their screen. Wow. In Mandarin. Live? Yes. Wow. So... And that's in just in, uh, currently in four spoken languages and in 50 written languages. Yeah, again, the accuracy thing worries me. Because imagine if you were having a business meeting with someone and you were relying on this translation technology and it didn't work. You know, you've sort of insulted the person without even realising it. <laughs> yeah, um, Complimented I, them on their stilettos. I See, I, yeah, exactly, right. <laughs> I, I actually have experience of this. In um, I taught English in Vietnam for a while and uh, my Vietnamese was terrible and still is. And I was trying to buy a mandolin. And I, I didn't know the word for mandolin or, or how to barter. So we spent an entire time passing back and forth uh, this guy's laptop with Google Translate. Needless to say, I paid quite a lot of money for the, the mandolin in the end. So I feel like it didn't really help me in that situation. It didn't really translate accurately. You got the mandolin, though. So I, did, I did. It's, I did. Not, yeah. it's not for negotiation, though. <laughs> okay. um, so actually, I looked at, in with Skype Translator. There was a, an experiment done by an, an American kid and his, his Chinese friend. And they did it on four different levels, and they did it on a very basic conversation, then on academic, and then on telling anecdotes, and finally on profanity, weirdly enough. And they graded it from A to F, and it never scored above a D+. Um, they said it, some things it didn't recognise at all. Um, and I think the conclusion was that basically a lot of these tools are very good at kind of word, basic word recognition and translation. I mean, very, very basic sentence level. But when it comes to kind of sub-sentence and the nuances of, uh, of the language, there's... I mean, it's, any kind of interpretation is a long way off. So I think teachers can uh, rest safely. OK, thanks, Patrick. Um, Beth, you're going to tell us why we need to be careful with gifts in Denmark and sex in Iceland. <laughs> Indeed, I am. Yes, this is um, false friends. So what is a false friend? Well, that would be a word that looks but doesn't necessarily sound similar in two different languages, but differs entirely in its meaning. Now, these can be really tricky things when you're learning a new language. When I started to learn Italian, I felt it was like someone switched all the lights off. You're just scrabbling around in the dark. You don't understand anything. Um, And then all of a sudden, someone switches on a light and you see a word you recognise. Now, if you're lucky, it will be a helpful, friendly cognate. So words which look the same and also share the same meaning. Can you give us an example of a cognate? So the more traditional words, isn't it? Things like uh, yeah, I mean, university or something yeah, would be a cognate. Television, and, right. that's quite a, a common one. Yes, exactly. But if you're not so lucky, the word might be a false friend. So, for example, simple example, in English, the word actual and in German, the word actuell, which doesn't actually mean actual, but it means current. Right. Uh, now, that's a fairly dry example. What I personally love about, love about false friends is that they can often be quite funny. Um, lots of humour, a humorous situation can arise. Oh, yeah, it's a classic uh, English-Spanish one, isn't it? I mean, I, I used to live in Spain, and I think it's embarrassed 
And yes, in, in, that was mine too, Patrick. Yeah, yeah embarrassed, <laughs> isn't it? It means, it means pregnant, right? So, yeah, I've spent I, the whole year pregnant. Yeah, I know. <laughs> it's fine for a lady, but I mean, imagine for me. <laughs> Absolutely. I actually tried to find out what the what you know what the root was was of that, but I think it's it's fairly unknown how that how those two meanings right. became so different. So let's have a little look about um, what we're talking about. So I'm going to ask each of you about a false friend, and I want to see if you can guess the answer. Do we just okay. get one guess? Okay. We could we, we could work collaboratively. You, this day and age, okay. we could work together. You may work collaboratively. Thank you. Collaboratively. <laughs> Okay, so let's do the first one um, to Claire. This one's to you. Mm-hmm. So if you ask for a glass of air in Malaysia, what do you think they bring you? A glass of air? Yeah. Um, I don't know even how to go about working this out. I wonder what I'd... I'm going to say, say beer. Beer's a good guess. Um, yeah. Air. I'm going to guess coffee. I'm going to say some kind of local drink that I've never tried before. <laughs> Good, but unfortunately um, not correct. It's actually more simple than that. Air is in fact water. Oh, water. In Malay, apparently. Yeah. Air. Wow. <laughs> so no points. No points so far. Uh, but I'll remember that one now because yes, there's, at least I've got a visual connection there, the sort of transparency of water and air. Exactly. exactly. Next time in Malaysia. <laughs> So, uh, to Sam. Okay. If you go to work by a rower, what form of transport do you take in Poland? A rower? It's got to be a bike or something, isn't it? Well, I mean, I, I, I would like to go with um, helicopter. Right. <laughs> Is that your preferred <laughs> mode of transport? <laughs> going to work, yeah. <laughs> Claire, any thoughts? Yeah, I'm going to say tram. Tram, okay. Yeah. Okay, well, actually, Sam, you were correct. Yes. It is, in fact, bicycle, yeah. One point for Sam. One point. point So that's 1-0-0 for listeners at home. Okay, and last one, I'll address it first to Patrick, give him first first dibs. So, in Welsh, I am quite mad, which is also relevant because I am actually Welsh. And mad. mad. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Sam. But what do you think mad means in Welsh, Patrick? I'm going to go with... Hungry. That is, yeah, very relevant to myself, but unfortunately not the correct answer. Okay, Claire? If you're mad, you are um, drunk. <laughs> also relevant, but also incorrect. <laughs> mad. Um, I am going to say it is very happy. That's another good guess, but no, the, were, uh, the answer is, in fact, lucky. Lucky. If you are mad, you are lucky. Mad. If you're oh mad, God. you're lucky. Yeah. This is where we need Patrick's translation technology. This is true, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so um, let's bring it back to learners now and some of the issues they might face and what, if anything, we can do to help teach these false friends. So when I was thinking about this, I was thinking that there are about three stages in learning false friends when you're learning a foreign language. And I, this is my own theory, by the way. Um, So there's stage one, blissful ignorance. Stage two, highly confused. And stage three, the sweet spot. So what do you think those three stages might be? Well, I think Sam and I spend most days in blissful ignorance. Absolutely, (laughs) yeah. It's my preferred state. Touching on highly confused. Yes, yes. Well, sometimes we get there. I dabble in highly confused. Yeah, I can recognise all three stages in my own learning process. Yeah. Um, yeah, as soon as you said false friends, I, I 
clearly remember situations, being in situations that were very embarrassing because of these kinds of words. Mm. And I think blissful ignorance is definitely the first stage. The sweet spot, you've got me there. I don't know what that is. Well, I think... What do you mean by sweet spot? Yeah, for me, that I was thinking in my own example, a simple one in Italian was um, the word caldo, which is um, hot in Italian, but obviously that's very similar to mm. cold. And that took me a long, long time. And it was, it was you know, over just um, months of hearing it in the right context that actually now for me, it, it's completely natural and it, I never even consider it a false friend anymore that okay. kind of thing we talked about though didn't we in preparation for this uh, podcast was just interesting i'm, I'm sure I'd, I'd been told once that actually learning antonyms mm-hmm. yeah. is a really bad thing to do because you get mm-hmm. confused you can't remember which is which you know both words mean one thing or the other but you can't remember which is which so i always have atsui desner and samui desner in japanese which one means hot it's very yeah. hot and one means it's very cold and i can never ever remember which one is which so yeah. do you think that's true of false friends that have a sort of... That are yes, definitely. And I think personally one good way to teach them is um, is about making them memorable. So for that example of air and water, you know, yeah, you do have, yeah. you've got a visual connection, you've got a, there is some kind of connection there. And I think teachers do like to use funny stories or a good way of doing it, I think, is error correction. You know, so you're writing, giving them funny sentences, which then mm. they have to correct and... I was thinking, um, do you speak Spanish, Claire? I do. You do, yeah. You said you live in Spain, exactly. So, for example, um, one that I read that I quite liked was the secretary put all the important documents in the carpet. Does that La make carpeta. sense? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> and carpet <laughs> is a false friend of, um, it means, bi- carpet is binder, I believe, in Spanish. Folder. Folder, right, yeah. Okay, I think so. Is it mainly for monolingual classes? Obviously, you wouldn't necessarily apply this to if you were teaching. In, yeah, to I group. mean that's a really good point, and in fact, that's why I think we don't see false friends taught in course books because how do you deal with something which is basically mm. a monolingual mm. monolingual situation? So, I think awareness is a really good one for teachers to be aware of the common ones um, because they do come up time and time again. And Claire, what about you? What do you do in your classes? Do you teach them as emergent language? Do you make a point of trying to, to teach false friends or do you just I, avoid I them entirely? I have made a point of, of trying to teach them with my young learners, no. But as soon as you asked that question about how to deal with it with our learners, I thought about my own experience playing this game now and how when I learnt the word, like you said, for, for water, I immediately had that visual connection of how to, how to make it memorable to me because of the visuals. I thought that was a really good tip. Yeah, no, visual connections are a fantastic idea. So if teachers can think of them and then they can present them to students quite early on, they might be able to avoid certain embarrassing situations for the students, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, as learners, you know, you do get yourself into situations and it is things can be embarrassing and, and lacking in confidence. So anything we can do to help that situation is, is great. Absolutely. OK, um, listeners, as always, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Will translation technology destroy the ELT industry? How do you deal with false friends? Email your comments to onestoppodcast at springernature.com. Okay, next up, it's warmer of the month. Each month, we challenge our guest teacher to explain a fun, communicative activity in no more than five steps. So, Claire, what have you got for us? Okay, so today I'd like to share a game that doesn't just encourage language production. It also stimulates imagination, creativity, and divergent thinking. And as a young learner teacher, of course, this is an activity or a warmer that you can use with your young learners. So I love using these types of games with kids. 
I think it provides, this particular one provides a wonderful opportunity for emergent language to take centre stage because the target vocabulary is anything that the children come up with while they play the game. So for me, I've noticed that this makes the language in the lesson or in this activity much more personal mm. and therefore it's most likely more memorable. So this game was inspired by a story called Not a Box by Antoinette Portis. So if you read the story before you play the game, this is just a little side tip. It can provide a great context for teaching or revising more specific language. But listen, it's a very simple game. Uh, but rather than me just explaining it, would you guys be willing to give it a go? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. Def- Stretch your yeah. imaginations a little and let's see who can, uh, who can be a little bit more creative. <laughs> why are you looking at me? I, I mean, think yeah. I can see your face. This is not a competition. Okay, all right. All right. Get a Everything is a, is a competition to Patrick. <laughs> this podcast is a competition. Waking, waking is a, uh, is a competition. Okay, so let me try and explain this game in under five steps, okay. right? Oof, here we go. So you start by presenting your group with a box, a, card, a plain cardboard box, and you ask them, what is it? And to that question, they will probably respond. It's a box. It's a box. That's right, hopefully. Um, and if they don't know it in L2, in English, you can, you can teach that word. So you actually then reply, no, it's not a box. And then you give the box a new purpose. So you might flip it over and you might hit it and you might say it's a drum or something like that. So after you've modelled what you expect them to do and say, you pass the box around the circle letting each child have a turn at coming up with an idea. And this is where you get the chance to teach new words if no one in the group can say it in English. So as the box gets passed from child to child, you encourage them to ask and answer the same question. What is it? And they say, it's, it's a box. And you say, it's not a box, it's a... And you see how many rounds you can do before you run out of ideas. Okay. Okay? Should we mm-hmm. give this a go? Absolutely. Yep. We don't have a box, though. We do have a glass. We could you, use a glass. You can use a pen. A pen a is pen. a great one. Okay. Patrick? There's lots of things that you can do with a pen. Here is mm. a pen. Do I have to mime something here? You do, you do. Okay, so uh, what's this? It's, it's a, a pen. pen. No, it's not a pen. It's a... It's a cigarette. Cigar. Oh, okay. A Actually, cigar. Claire's right. It was a cigar, cigar. not a cigarette. Okay. You, you, you're kind of... Uh, How old is this le- young learner supposed to be, Patrick? <laughs> That's true. It's probably... Uh, I mean, not they're the very, most No, the they're very mature for their age. Come on. Okay. <laughs> Sam. Okay, what's this? It's, it's a pen. It's a pen. No, it's not. What's this? It's a mustache. It's a mustache. Very, very good. Yeah. That Excellent. was very creative. <laughs> what's this? It's, it's a, a pen. pen. No, it's not. It's a thermometer. Oh, good. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> you guys are great. Okay. Okay. It's now been in my mouth. Apologies. Actually, okay. Claire, we need to pass you the pen. Oh, yeah, great. <clears throat> yeah. Got it. What's this? It's a the pen. pen. It's not a pen. It's a... It's a wand. It's a wand. It's a magic yes. wand. Yes. Very good. Very good. Brilliant. What a so, game. What a great game. Great. Isn't it great? And yes, kids great, love this. You know, if yeah. you've ever seen a child receive a present and then spend more time playing with the box than the actual present, yeah. you'll know just how creative kids are. And a game like this really encourages, not stifles their creativity. I've also heard of teachers using this same game in groups of adults who are working in the field of marketing or the arts. And they get right into it. Absolutely, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, I think okay. so. Um, but what, what a fun activity! I think it's a great thing to, mm. apart from anything else, it helps them to learn words that they want or that they, you know, presumably use or know in their own language and, and want to know in English. So that's exactly right, Sam. How many times do teachers walk in with a list of words that they expect your children to learn and not give them a voice in the class? So I think um, you're spot on there. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Oh, you're welcome. Now it's time for Word of the Month. Each month we discuss a piece of ELT jargon and how it affects teachers. So Patrick, what on earth is prosody and why should our listeners care? It's a term that comes from linguistics and relates to elements of speech that are not individual phonetic segments like vowels and consonants, but are larger units like syllables and other elements of speech. Okay. So prosody effectively covers a whole range of elements of a piece of speech or utterance, including such things as intonation, tone, stress, rhythm, and timing. And it could also reflect the speaker's emotional state, so whether what they're saying is a question or a command, or if their utterance is delivered sarcastically or ironically, or it could emphasise contrast or focus. And basically it's concerned with any element of language not encoded by grammar or choice of vocabulary. And actually, um, just to interject a bit, some of those things are really fun to teach in a class. I don't know if any of you have tried to do that, but given them uh, a sentence and asked them to stress it in different ways to, to imply different meaning or to, you know, have the class guess their mood by the tone of delivery and things like that. It's just such a fun activity. It's much more, uh, it can be really, really engaging. Massively, it? massively. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it is really important to teach prosodic elements because basically it improves the comprehension. That's That's the key to it. I mean, there are loads of elements of spoken language that are actually absent from written language, so it's really, really important that students learn them. I don't know how many times you guys have encountered students who are really confident when reading or writing, but they can't hold a conversation. Like, they can't understand the tone or the intonation. So, yeah, focusing not just on grammar and vocabulary, but on elements of speech really gives them confidence that they need to become proficient speakers. Claire, what about you? What do you think of this? Yeah, I think it's really important because so much of the meaning is carried in our tone of voice. And where we the word the particular word that we stress, right. um, whether our voice rises or falls at the end of a sentence. So I have done activities with this in my class before, and like you, Sam, I found it a lot of fun. Students really appreciate it too. I think when you raise awareness about this feature of the English language, it something clicks with them, and they start noticing it more when they're doing listenings or when they're uh, doing speaking activities or or using the using the English language. Right, and I think that's the that's a, a big point of this is that actually it really really helps comprehension. Um, you know, certainly of listening and things like that. Yeah, I mean, I think it comes back to what you said earlier, Sam, about reading out loud. This is if you want to teach particular prosodic elements, you, you should choose an element that you want to focus on and then break down sentences to words and enable students to focus on just the one element they want to improve on or one or two elements. And in that way, you can get them to understand that part of speech and, and how they improve it. Great. Thank you very much. Pleasure. OK, let's move on to this month's interview. This month, Patrick is talking to Lindsay Clanfield about English for the zombie apocalypse, what not to do in the classroom, and the continued importance of role plays. Okay, hi Lindsay, how are you today? Fine, thanks. How are you? Very good, very good. Thank you so much for taking the time to come and join us on the show. No problem at all. My pleasure. Excellent. Okay, so to begin with, could you tell us a little bit about your career and how you got into teaching and subsequently uh, writing materials for the English classroom? Sure. Well, like all materials writers, I started as an English teacher. I started teaching actually in Mexico. I'm from Canada. 
after getting my initial training, I started teaching in Mexico at a university, and that was where I began making my own materials, uh, initially just for myself and with other people in the staff room and sharing them with the staff. I eventually moved to Europe, where I was working in Barcelona, um, and got more trained. I got, did a diploma course, got more trained up there, continued making materials, and it was there that I began to sort of realize there were perhaps opportunities for, for materials writing. And this is actually curiously where One Stop English comes in, because this was a time at the early 2000s when One Stop English had just started out. Uh, it was uh, like the old version of the site, uh, early days of the web, and they had a thing, I think, I believe you still have it, right? The lesson share competition? Yeah, yeah, that's still going strong. Yeah, yeah. 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 So I started by submitting a lesson there and winning the award for lesson share for one month. And I asked, can I do this again? And they said, sure. I think the award at the time was like a book. Um, and uh, I did it again, and I, 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 I won a couple months later again. And I think after a third time, they said, well, we, we've given you all the books that we're going to give you now, so <laughs> why don't you do the next one and we'll pay you? And that was, like, that was so exciting for me. So I then started doing stuff for One Stop um, back in those days, doing the speaking lessons, American vocabulary lessons. Lots of these are still on the site. And I think I did one thing per month for around 10 years on One Stop English for, uh, during that period. And it was from there that I got in touch with Macmillan and eventually through various um, sending samples, getting asked to do other samples and stuff, began writing materials and course books and the rest is history, I guess. Brilliant, excellent, that's a great way yeah. into it. Um, now, yeah. now, you have, um, you have a, a writing partner, I understand at the moment, uh, Robert Campbell, and last year you guys published an ebook entitled English for the Zombie Apocalypse. Can you just tell us a bit about that and how you arrived at such an original concept? <laughs> sure, well, um, at the same time, Robert Campbell and I uh, go way back. At the same time I started writing for One Stop English, I also started writing for a magazine called It's for Teachers. Robert Campbell was the editor uh, and creator of that magazine. So we've written together on various projects, and we decided we wanted to do something uh, really different together. Uh, sort of like many, many years later, after we'd gone our separate ways, we kind of met each other again. And, and we wanted to do something that was, uh, at first, it, it came out of frustration of trying to write a lesson using there is, there are, and food things. And this was for an elementary worksheet or course that I was doing. I can't remember. And I was just frustrated, and I was asking Robert about it. And I said, I can't think of a context when you would use this, there is, there are, in questions, unless you're with food, unless you're asking about a fridge, I suppose. You know, is there, is there any water? Is there any milk? And I thought, that's so typical. And then we kind of joked, I guess you could do it if you were scavenging for food in a zombie apocalypse. You know, when someone's standing guard outside the house, you know, the zombies are coming and you're like asking, is there any water? Quick check. Are there any peaches? Is there any, is there, is there any this and that and so on? And then the idea didn't let go of me. And I was like, wow, that's actually you could do a whole bunch of functions, yeah. you know, asking for things, asking, calling for help and meeting other people all in this context. So, and at the same time, it was like peak zombie. I, I, I don't know if we're out <laughs> of peak zombie, but it was, it was like Walking Dead was big. Um, all these zombie books, World War Z with Brad Pitt had come yeah. out, um, uh, all the, the board games, video games, uh, iPad games, everything was zombie, zombie, zombie. So, so we, uh, we then made what we considered to be like, it was like if a manual that was, it was kind of a mock-up of a manual as if like there had been this manual made during the zombie apocalypse 
and the premise was communication is vital when you're facing the end of the world. And when the zombie apocalypse comes, everyone's going to be talking English. And so we were just went from there. So it just became a series of lessons that we... Um, that we made that follow functions. So in fact, it is kind of like everyday English, you know, meeting people, asking about things, talking about future plans, warning of danger, giving directions, but it's all situated in an apocalyptic situation. So Okay, and how has that, um, how's that gone down in class? Um, it's gone down, I mean, you know, the, the, the people who have written to us who are using it, because we sell it online as a PDF with audio, are usually, it's often gone down really well, especially with like teenager classes, classes where they're doing practical English, and the teacher just wants to try something different, you know, the, instead of the usual giving directions in, a, in London or in Newcastle or in New York, it's giving directions out of a ruined city. So, you know, it's going down well with, with, with teens, but I've heard people who've used, used it with adults, not with, like, really young learners, I don't think. But, uh, yeah, no, I mean, our, uh, the feedback we've been getting is great. So Brilliant, yeah. yeah. I guess yeah. it might kind of slightly terrify the young learners, but it could enliven, enliven <laughs> it, a business class, perhaps. It so. could do, it could do. And then there are some teachers who are just like, oh, I just don't want anything to do with zombies. That's fair enough, too. So No, that's, <laughs> that, that's that. their choice. But um, Okay, well, yeah. um, speaking of teachers, you've worked extensively as a teacher trainer and so yep. we touched on this in previous podcasts about what teachers can do to improve their teaching but I wanted today to take a slightly different angle and ask you what they should stop doing to improve their teaching so what are the biggest mistakes that you see teachers make in the classroom Oof. okay so big mistakes that teachers are making in the classroom so what the things they should stop doing yeah um, I mean one of the one of the big things obviously is over explaining everything and not being able like one of the things that often happens is is uh, it's more with novice teachers but also teachers who i guess who get set in their ways and even i've been guilty of this is is you get so wrapped up with explaining something it could be a grammar point or it could be vocabulary or it could be stuff in the reading or it could be the cultural background of something that you end up the class becomes sort of like lecture-like. And so mm. you, you're, you find yourself just talking and writing stuff on the board and saying, oh, and this is interesting and, and that and so on and so forth. And at the end, the student's participation is, is less. I'm not talking necessarily about teacher talk. I know there's a whole area of like, you know, more, less teacher talk time, more student talk time. I'm talking about more sort of the, often our lessons are geared towards a final outcome in the last 10 minutes where students are all supposed to be talking. Problem is, is if you spend too much time on the early parts, you know, the, 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 the text or the grammar stuff or the vocabulary, it all gets kind of edged out. And so then I've, I've, the number of classes I've seen where I'm looking at my watch, I'm thinking, we're getting close to the end. And they're, they're, I know there's a big speaking activity coming up and they're going to have like three minutes to do it. Mm. And so the teacher kind of keeps going with all the stuff and then gets to it. And then says, okay, we don't have a lot of time, but let's try it anyway. And, you know, it's three minutes left, and they say, okay, you have to stop now. You know, or, so it's a question, I think, of timing and making, and almost like making sure you're going to get to that communicative piece that you want in the class. So yeah. stop explaining everything. Stop kind of dominating, I suppose, and make sure there's room for the students as well. On the flip side, you know, there's, there's other situations where, Teachers just let, you know, the students do all the talking without any kind of, like, managing of it and everything. And just if people are talking and laughing and having a good time, then they must be learning. But that's also problematic. So kind of you have to find a happy balance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So make sure you plan for time for communicative activities. Yeah. But also, yeah, don't, yeah. don't just let people yeah. run wild, so to speak. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, so talking about communicative uh, strategies, you've given a lot of conference talks, and one of the talks uh, jumped out at me in particular, which was using role plays in class. And so can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that talk and how they could use role plays to develop? There was a book that I, um, this came out of a course that I did uh, called Straightforward, where um, a lot of the stuff I was, I was writing the low levels, and we were using role play a lot. Also something that I ended up revisiting with the zombie apocalypse, lots of role play. And um, I remember reading a great quote from uh, John Wayne on how to act, which he said, you know, talk low, talk slow, and don't talk too much. And I kind of thought, with that quote, I thought, that's exactly like my elementary learners. So I was looking at role play as a way of getting them to actually talk more and using that. So I had, uh, you know, I developed a whole bunch of different kinds of role plays using props, uh, experimenting with cards with more information, less information on them, setting up role plays which have some kind of like conflict that needs to be resolved so um so that there's a kind of a reason for speaking mm-hmm. and then also seeing other teacher trainers workshops on drama and improvisation because i think there's been a rich tradition in in elt of drama as being part of, of of the language classroom there's several books that touch on that one uh one speaker i really like on that is ken wilson he's done lots of kind of different interesting role play activities and so I was wanting to bring a lot of that together to sort of look at role plays and see how they are still important uh, in the language classroom. I think that they are they're really useful. I also think that now with technology, like if we assume that lots of classrooms now have a projector, I think it's safe to assume not all, but lots of classrooms have a projector and teachers are comfortable projecting. I've recently been experimenting with role plays where the um, props aren't just like physical props. I used to have things where they would have a phone or a hat or a, pretend to hold a newspaper while they did it. Mm-hmm. But now I project behind the students, you know, like a scene or, or an image. So if we're in a cafe, you can project an enormous image of a cafe up at the front of the board and have music, like cafe-type music playing, you know, find a Spotify playlist with some whatever the Starbucks music is and then put that on the background for them to do their role play and then have two people come up and sit at the front with that backdrop behind it. So that's, that's been... Um, um, that's been my latest uh, stuff for role play that I've been working on. Oh, that's really interesting, actually. Nice. Yep. So, well, yep. listen. Um, finally, many of our listeners will be familiar with the excellent podcast you do, the Tefl Commute, and <laughs> you present this with, uh, with Sean Weldon. And I wanted to ask you a bit more about this. How did it come about? Has there been anything that really surprised you during the course of making the show? And if you could just have one dream guest on your show, who would you choose, and why? Okay. Um, great. Well, yeah, no, I mean, podcasting, I, 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 I discovered podcasts a couple of years ago, a bit more, and it's now supplanted my music on my phone or whatever I carry on with me. So I listen more to podcasts than I do to music. I really think that it, like the audio medium is enjoying a renaissance. And I figured it was only a question of time before people would start doing them in, in our field, in ELT. So we've got your podcast and Tefl Commute. There's a couple of others I've heard. Tefalology, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. The Tefl Teacher. I think there was one other one. Um, the name escapes me now. But uh, So uh, and with Sean Walden, um, we knew each other from Aya Tefl, and we, in fact, did a special interest group uh, event together where instead of doing a webinar, we did it as a series of podcasts. This was between the learning technologies and the global interests uh, group and the the podcast series was called edtech concerns Mm -hmm. 
And um, we did a series of that, and we really enjoyed the kind of the podcasting element of it. So then uh, Sean really wanted to do a podcast about teaching in general. I think it was originally going to be called Desert Island Teaching, and then we settled on TEFL Commute because we wanted it to be uh, not too long, a good length for a commute, and and, and then and, and we started. And I'm really just the host. I mean, it all is down to Sean and our producer, James Taylor, the teacher James, his handle is, and he, he and Sean do all the, the production work, which I know is considerable on one of these things. I just get on and, and babble on about stuff. Yeah, so uh, things out of the dream guest, there have been a couple of dream guests. Now, we didn't want to have it just like with authors and stuff like that, although that's great. Uh, but two dream guests that I wanted to have on, I always wanted to do an episode where, I w- uh, where we talked about famous actors and or footballers who've had to learn English. And <laughs> I didn't want to talk to one of them. I wanted to talk to one of their teachers. And I haven't found anybody yet. Like, I, I, I was desperate to find, you know, like, whatever, um, Cristiano Ronaldo's English teacher when he was in Manchester. I mean, that was somebody that I really wanted to talk to. Or, uh, or any one of those. Uh, we'd even gone quite far to find out, like, the language teaching wings of different football clubs, which were usually part of, like, a whole bunch of other stuff. So Manchester or Arsenal had language teaching as part of it, but we never got a teacher. That was one dream guest. The other dream guest was that I wanted to get in touch with somebody who had participated in a study in the 1970s. Uh, We talked about recently on a show where uh, people were given alcohol and volume and then tested on their language fluency um, in a foreign (laughs) language. And it's just the most intense and insane um, study that you see. It's all written up and everything like that, where they were given these things um, and and then they had to do pronunciation tests and talk in a foreign language. And I was desperate to try to find one of these people who was a student in the 70s who would participate in the study. Couldn't find them. That's that's, that's a shame. That that would have been fascinating. That would have been hilarious. Yeah. (laughs) Brilliant. Listen, this has been absolutely fantastic to talk to you, Lindsay. Thank you so much for, for well, taking the time. Thanks for having me on. And, uh, yeah, keep up the great work on the podcast. And, uh, yeah. Same to you. It's been a lot of fun. Same Good to, to see One Stop English is still, still doing new and different things. Absolutely. Long may it continue. Thanks a lot, Lindsay. Take care. Okay. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Okay, next up is Teacher Tips. Each month we probe our guest teacher for professional advice. So, Claire, what are your top tips? Okay, well, continuing on with my theme of of young learners, I will give you three things that you can do that will have a big impact on your young learner teaching practice. Okay. The first one is learning about child development. It's essential to know what you can expect from your young learners, and that's not just linguistically, but what you can expect from them cognitively, physically, and emotionally. Actually, One Stop English has a great summary of this about the ages and stages of kids, so you can probably find that on their website. That's a really interesting tip, yeah, because um, I, I taught young learners in, in Vietnam, and it did take a while to adjust because I just, I just had no experience of, of being mm-hmm. around so many children, really. Like, ask yourself, can a child of the age that I'm about to teach use scissors? These are the kind of things that you don't have to think about when you're teaching adults, but you do need to consider when you're planning the activities that you're going to be doing with your young learners. Should you demonstrate cigars with a game involving <laughs> pen? Absolutely. And, um, I mean, I actually was, was even kind of, stop behaving like children! Uh, oh, you, you, <laughs> you are children, aren't you? And kind of adapting what you expect from them or, or you know, changing yeah, your perception of no, That's clearly, an, clearly an important tip. Absolutely. Uh, tip number two, observe children. 
Observe children and their teachers. Arrange to visit a school or, if you're teaching in a school, arrange to come in earlier and check out what they're doing in their natural environment. Watching kids in the playground is a great way of seeing what their interests are, uh, what they're physically able to do, uh, the relationships between the kids, and they are, that is all like great information to help you when you're planning your classes. Watching an experienced teacher in action is also fantastic for picking up classroom management techniques. And if you're teaching or living and teaching in a foreign country, it's really good too because the school culture might be very different to the one that you were brought up with. So that is another great tip, I think. Excellent. I agree. In the natural environment. Okay. And tip number three. Okay. So the first two tips were low cost and informal ways to develop professionally. But there's nothing like some formal training to help boost your CV and advance your career. So a good course will provide a like a balance between theory and practice, and it'll help you make uh, better decisions about planning and implementing your lessons. So that, for me, is uh, yeah, tip number three. Great. So presumably things like uh, young learner extensions and things like that are really good um, ways into the, the industry. Yeah, most uh, initial teaching certificates, like the CELTA or the uh, Trinity CERT, have an extension course for young learners. There are lots of schools offering local training as well, courses to help you specialise. And if you can't find something locally, check out your online options. Good advice. All right, thank you very much. Okay, it's time for Q&A, the part of the show in which we try to answer your questions. So is everyone ready? Yep. Absolutely. Okay, great. Question number one. Can critical thinking be taught at lower levels or to young learners? Tough question. Absolutely. Claire, um, as you're our young learner expert this this month, would you like to answer that part of the question? Oh, yeah. I just gave a wonderful talk on using something called loose parts in the classroom. And through the use of these kinds of materials, like I said before about developing creativity, problem-solving, critical thinking, you can definitely do this with young learners. It's it, You can and you should. Absolutely. Um, I mean, all I was going to say is it, it really depends on your definition of critical thinking. Mm. If you're talking about things that where you're asking people to assess the logic of somebody's argument, mm. that's a very academic thing to do. That's true, pure critical thinking. But if you're asking people to justify their opinions about something or to read or infer something into what they're reading or, or listening to, then absolutely you can do that. For lower levels, a little bit more difficult. I think you have to probably change what you expect them to produce so perhaps rather than just expecting perfect long brilliant explanations of things you have to you know change your expectation a little but claire yeah let me just elaborate on what i said earlier because just when i was speaking before about learning ages and stages of kids when you're working with the very young learners you are teaching them the initial stages you're giving them the foundation from which they will build on and eventually have these kinds of critical thinking skills or abilities that you're talking about now yeah. but when we're working with young kids we can certainly present them with materials that they can use which present problems for them that they have to think about that they have to interact with each other and these are all the foundation skills for those kinds of abilities that will serve them so much later on in life right so, so you're already paving the way for for the, the kind of things that i was talking about yeah. absolutely yeah okay um next question I'm interested in teaching one-to-one lessons online. What's the best way to get started? Patrick, I think you have 
Yeah, I think t- turning on your computers is a pretty decent. That's start. a very good start. Yeah. But... Um, no, but there's loads of there's loads of ways to do this. I mean, I we had an article on One Stop recently uh, by. Um, a Brazilian lady, uh, Cecilia Nobre, which was all about teaching online. And she's talking about the different tools you can use, obviously Skype being one, Zoom being another, and also about different ways you can interact with students. So obviously you can get into email, email through their writing assignments, and then you can, if you're having a conversation, cor- correct their mistakes in the chat box, that kind of thing. Um, I would direct listeners to that article. Um, it's on our Challenges in ELT series uh, with online teaching. Um, I don't know if anyone else has any tips at all, any ideas? I was just going to back up what you said, Patrick. Cecilia Nobre is a fantastic professional here in Brazil, and um, she actually has an online course now as well. Great. So, uh, yeah, anyone who's interested, go and check that article out. And finally, tell us about an embarrassing moment you had to deal with in the classroom. Claire, as our guest this month, maybe you should go first. I'm first. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Okay, listen, the story I have to share isn't that embarrassing. It's just, it's rather cute. Um, when I was working in Galicia in Spain many, many years ago, I had a girl join us halfway through the year and I was going about the regular routine of showing her to take off her shoes and repeating shoes, shoes, shoes and then hanging up a coat and coat, coat, coat and trying to make her feel welcome. She loved her first day of class and as she was walking away with her mother, I overheard her in Spanish, her mother asking her what she thought of the class and she said that she loved it and what did you think of her teacher and she said she loved her teacher but mummy... She doesn't know how to speak properly. (laughs) But wait, the next day, Marta came back. And as I was doing the routine, taking off her shoes, 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 she took took my face in her little hands and she looked at me and she said, Zapatos. Zapatos. And that was my lesson on how to speak properly from Marta. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that, that's adorable. Patrick, you've got a story. Um, yeah. Well, it's, it's not. It's not quite as adorable, um, and it reflects quite badly I'd expect, on me. I'd expect nothing less, <laughs> yeah. as usual. But um, yeah. <clears throat> no, I had, I had a group of uh, teenagers a few years ago. I was teaching, and uh, this is a multilingual uh, class. Um, but there's one student who was particularly shy in the class, a French student, and so I, I kind of uh, was doing a roll call on the first day, and I called him Daniel. And I kept on calling him Daniel for the first day and then the second day and the third day. And then another student came up to me and said, uh, actually, his name's David. And uh, but he was only there for a week. And so for the next two days, I carried on calling him Daniel because I didn't want to admit the mistake. <laughs> and poor Daniel didn't say anything about this. No. It's, uh, um, unfortunate, but hey. Wow. Okay, well, that's it for another month. If you have any questions, suggestions or feedback, or you just want to tell us how much you love us, please email us at onestoppodcast at springernature.com or leave a comment on the One Stop page. Thank you, as always, to our in-house panellists, Patrick and Beth. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks to our guest teacher, Claire Venables, for joining us all the way from Brazil. It was lovely to be here. And thank you for listening. And until next month, this is the One Stop English Podcast. 